0: The end of Bring Back V10 Series 2 is here, but before we go, we're going to tackle more of your questions about anything and everything in F1 from 1989 to 2005. Thank you so much to everyone who submitted a question, either by using the hashtag v 10s on Twitter, or to those of you who left us a five-star podcast review and sent in your question that way. The wait for Series 3 won't be too long, I promise, and we'll have more details on our return date at the end of this episode. I'm Glenn Freeman, and to see us home to the end of Part 2 of our series finale, I'm delighted to be joined by Ed Straw and Karun Chanduk. Now, Ed, to repeat our trick from last week, in the absence of a traditional opening question, which of our topics today are you most looking forward to?
1: Well, Regular listeners will know I have a, a certain fondness for the unfashionable end of the grid, ideally, actually, not even on the grid uh, competitors. So, there's a question in here about a driver who's best known for cropping up in social media as a bit of a, a figure of fun in his spell in the lower reaches of the field, and also a driver who I think warrants a little bit of a, a reputation rebuild. So, I'm, I'm always happy to visit that sort of topic, but as always, Great bunch of questions, and Bring Back V10 seems to attract an excellent level of question asker among its listeners, so well done everyone.
0: Yeah, we don't get very many repeats, I must say, so everyone's got their own brilliantly weird and wonderful things they want to ask, and Karun, welcome back for your second appearance of Series 2. Last time we had you on, we were talking about Estoril 1993, it'll be a bit more varied today, so which of the subjects we've got on our list are you most looking forward to?
2: Well, there seem to be lots of what-if questions as well, um, which I'm normally not a fan of. But actually, there's, there are a couple of good ones in here. So uh, I'm looking forward to getting stuck into that. Um, but yeah, we'll be talking about underachievers and overachievers in this uh, period of V10s as well.
1: Which one are you, Karim?
2: Well, I wasn't racing in this period of V10s, Straw. So before you get your joke in, haha. <laughs> um but no i uh i will look forward to i'll talk about the underachievers ed. ed should we do that let's do that and then you can have the overachievers your
0: area of expertise <laughs> there you go yeah well if Karun underachieved that's kind of a compliment in a way because it means he was capable of more that's why i thought i'd get in there first glenn <laughs> <laughs> and we will be revisiting something we talked about in that esteril 93 episode as well but that's for later on So let's crack on with our first question, which comes from one of our five star reviews. T.S. Robinson 1989 asks, do you think Damon Hill could have won the title if he'd gone to McLaren in 1998? Now, if you want to hear a lot more about Hill's driver market options for 1998, go back to our Hungary 97 episode in series one, because Damon was talking to all kinds of teams at that point, but he did have an offer on the table from McLaren. And he turned it down because Ron Dennis, I think, offered him a million dollars per race win and no basic retainer, which resulted in Damon slamming the phone down on Ron. So who wants to take this one first? Do we think if Damon had taken that offer that was on the table and gone up against Mika Hakkinen in the same car, could he have beaten Mika to the championship?
2: I think it would have been a tall order. Um, Mika was on on a great run of form throughout the 98 season, hit the ground running. Obviously somewhat controversially one in Melbourne um with a with you know the the fake pit stop or the phantom radio call that, that led him into the pits but you know he he really had the measure of DC didn't he all through that season and you'd have to say that in you know as a sort of form of comparison DC was in his rookie first full season in 95 not a million miles off Damon really you'd have to say that they were sort of to a, certainly to a second half of the year in terms of qualifying and pole positions, David was right up there with Damon. So, I I think it would have been a tall order to to go up up against mika but he would have certainly had much more success than he had with the one win at Jordan. Yeah,
1: he'd have certainly have won races, and that car obviously was a title winner. So, it's possible Adrian Newey held him in high regard. Maybe the fact that Hill was an established world champion would have helped him weather some of the the perceived favouritism that they had for for Hakkinen. But I think Mika Hakkinen probably would have had the edge on pace. And I don't think that's because Damon Hill was slow. I think it's because Micah Hakkinen would have had the pace on 99.999% of drivers, uh, the way he was going in that year. And of course, as Corinne said, he was on a great run of form in 98. But it's often forgotten that even though he was gifted that win at the end of 97, he had a strong season in 97 as well. So momentum, he was the incumbent hill the incomer albeit with a title i think tall orders are a good phrase but you can't underestimate what hill would have been capable of i suspect he'd have won multiple races though and if you
0: win multiple races maybe you've got a hope and if he'd won multiple races he would have earned a decent uh, amount of money out of ron dennis anyway but let's move on to our second question from mario goncalves on twitter who asks, was Michael Schumacher at Spa in 95 genius or villain? Now, Karun, you can take this one on. Spa 95 was, of course, a famous Hill versus Schumacher battle. There was wet conditions, changeable conditions, slicks versus wets, and Michael certainly got his elbows out. Do you think it was a great drive or a, a naughty drive?
2: I think it was a great drive. Um, you know, I think we need to take a step back to qualifying. They both had mixed conditions in qualifying. I think Damon started eighth, Michael way back in sixteenth, and these were the two championship contenders. But it's interesting now getting Damon's perspective. Obviously, at the time, you know, he had the he was waving his arm and gesticulating because he thought Michael was a bit unfair. But actually, now when you talk to Damon and when we watched it back, which we did during lockdown um, on Sky. He sort of looked at it and go, Well, it actually, it doesn't look that bad now. And, you know, I think Michael was the master of playing on the edge, didn't he? He, he really took re- things to the limit. Uh, um, you know, he he fought hard. He Sometimes you'd have to argue, like with the Rubens in Budapest in 2010, it was over the limit. But most of the time, he floated very close to the edge. And, and Spa 95 was no different. But it was a stellar performance. You know, when any time a driver goes from 16th to win a Grand Prix, that's got to be a pretty special drive. And 95, I would argue, as being one of Michael's best seasons. I still think 2000 was probably his best season. But I think 95 was is right up there in terms of his overall performances. Yeah,
0: I'd completely agree, actually, that when you look back on it now, you can't really work out what all the fuss was about in that race. I think it was just what we've become used to as drivers making use of all the road should we say while you're in battle with someone else but our next question comes from the racing bar steward and ed i'm assuming this is a question you were talking about at the start of the episode because uh the question is the adventures of ricardo Rosset deserve a mention and did his team really change the name on his car to ricardo tosser ed you've interviewed Rosset, i believe in the past did you ask him that question
1: yeah, I did actually. Uh, he said that he wasn't specifically aware of it, but he he did concede that it sounded plausible, as it were. There's a few different versions of it. Some have said it was on the car, some have said it was on the Paddock scooter, maybe the Paddock scooter's more likely, but it's it's a good little trick transposing the T and, and the R, and he wasn't that popular in the Tyrrell team. They didn't really want him, but the team had been sold to BAR, so they took the driver with with money, but... He's an interesting case because Rosset, he's probably got one of the most unfair reputations of almost any driver from this 89 to 2005 period. He's, he's this figure of fun, isn't he, because of the uh, the recycling of a few videos on... Uh, on social media, they would constantly crop up on Twitter. That that failed spin turn at Swimming Pool 2 at Monaco in, in 98. And I asked him about that as well when I interviewed him. It was on a, the All Sport podcast a few years ago. I did it and asked him about that one. And he said, well it's down to the fact the clutch wasn't working because they were they were losing air in the hydraulic system. So he he put it in first with the clutch in and the car just rolled forward and made him look like he didn't know how to recover it. That that weekend actually is is the nadir for Rosset because he had that incident he turned in on Nerve in a free practice session and caused a crash. He didn't qualify. Unforgivable. <laughs> well, in your world, definitely. It should have been a, a life ban. So he wasn't that popular. But interesting driver. If you look at his F1 career, very much the second driver at Arrows in 96 in that first season. Had the misfortune to drive for the short-lived Lola team in 97. Tried to qualify in Melbourne with only a few gears available. And then the second driver at Tyrrell. That was in a time when... Teams like that sometimes did struggle to have uh, have two relatively equal cars and you would very much be the second one. And what You can't argue that he did his ability level justice or made a case for a prolonged F1 career. He was good enough to win F3000 race on his debut. He ran Vincenzo Sospiri.
2: I was there, Ed. I, I was there. at Silverstone. I was standing on the bank at Cop's Corner with my dad. And... Um, I remember I'd been snuck into the pits and got a Paul Stewart racing cap. So I was cheering for Alan McNish, who started third on the grid. Uh, but it was Ricardo Rosset who won on that day. Uh, and Suspiria, I think his teammate was second. Another good driver who, you know, they both ended up in F1 together in, as you mentioned, in, in unfortunate circumstances. But uh, he wasn't as bad a driver as, unfortunately, the uh, the Twitter world seems to think he is because... You know, you don't win a Formula Three thousand race on debut against drivers like McNish. Or, you know, if you are a tosser,
1: exactly, <laughs> and ran ran Suspiri close for the for the title, British F three race when not. It wasn't a great lost talent or anything, but he was a he was a decent driver in a horrendous situation. Plus, I've got a lot of time for him. He's got a Tyrrell and he's got a footwork that he raced in Formula One uh, that he that he's bought. He tried to buy the Lola, but he said that was a little bit too expensive for for what it was. So uh, he's enthusiastic
0: about his uh, his Grand Prix career. He could just buy a bathtub and paint it. Could not need to get the Lola. Yeah, that might be a little bit too high spec. A cheap bathtub, shall we say? Yeah, that's fine. My, my last in memory of Rosset will always be him steaming into that Spa 98 pilot when it seems like he arrives 30 seconds after the accident and he's still flat out. But uh, let's, let's stay down the back end of the grid, or I would assume it depends what Karun picks as his answer. Tom Franks on Twitter says, in an era notorious for pay drivers, who would you regard as the best pay driver in the V10 era? And Tom says, I would champion Pedro Diniz for his handful of decent results and comparable longevity in the sport what do you reckon Karun are you going with Denise or someone else
2: it's an obvious answer this isn't it it's got to go back to Spa 1991 when a certain German driver had I think Ed, uh, Ed and Glenn you could correct me but it, I, it also slightly depends on which version of Eddie's story you get whether it was $150,000 $250,000 or $350,000 but Mercedes paid for Michael Schumacher to race with Jordan that weekend and Listen, there's no question about the fact that he went on to have uh, probably the best career for a pay driver in Formula One.
1: I think it's one of those things that there's pay drivers and there's pay drivers, aren't there? Uh, Dines was the, was someone who wouldn't have got near F1 without it. I don't. I think Dines, funnily enough, he he went from kind of an object of derision to almost being overrated in Formula 1 at, at times you know he was perfectly competent driving about but he wasn't a, a superstar but there, there's a difference between your Deniz's and your Bernalde's and your uh, drivers like that and and your Schumacher's etc but it's it's funny to think about the, these drivers who did require that little bit of of cash to uh to get on the grid.
0: Yeah we talked about the Schumacher debut obviously earlier in this series and the the paperwork we uncovered for that episode suggested it was 150 grand paid by mercedes for that race and i think it was going to be 3.5 million a season if he'd signed the long-term deal which of course as you can hear in an earlier episode in the series he got out of next question is from rick on twitter who says and we're still at the back of the grid actually because he says if today's point system was used back in the v10 era do you think smaller teams like minardi would have benefited and been able to capitalize on more point more prize money that points bring with it to become a stronger team, maybe even consistent midfielders. We love a Minardi mention on Bring Back V10's Ed, do you think a different points system would have helped them at all during their existence?
1: Well, I decided to crunch the numbers on this one to so have a look at Minardi's results from '89 to 2005 using the current point system. Uh, it certainly has a big impact on the uh, on the points tally. I think Minardi go from 37 points in that period to 430 in the points down to 10th world. It doesn't actually make that much difference to championship position. There's there's the odd one place or two place gain, tenth rather than twelfth in. 92, 7th rather than 8th and 93, 9th rather than 10th in 99 and, and the odd loss it goes from 9th to 10th in 2002 but it's probably not making a huge amount of difference although there were five seasons when it was unclassified that was before you could be classified in the constructors championship on a on a count back to non-points finishes system so in terms of financial rewards directly not a massive difference although there would have been occasions where it would qualify for the travel assistance that existed at, at one stage before it was all done in more of a flat payment having said that when it comes to landing sponsorship you could argue that a team that was scoring 71 rather than seven points in 93 is a more appealing prospect but it's quite hard to judge that and it it really depended on Minardi either getting a megabuck sponsor or uh, a new owner with with funds to pour into it and actually That was what happened to Minardi in the end. It almost fell over, but Red Bull brought it and it's the AlphaTauri team we've seen today. Just as an aside, I think that point system evolution was sensible because if you go back 30 years ago, the number of finishes was was often so low that you just get points just by getting to the end of a race. Sometimes even when it was just down to six and I think it would have been a bit cheap with points down to tenth at that stage, whereas now you do need it. I think three teams wouldn't have scored points at all on points down to sixth in the 2020 F1 season. So, yeah, with Minardi, it was all about new ownership, wasn't it? I suspect they wouldn't have been any more the any less the the plucky minnow struggling on with various little uh, little takeovers and team sales that went on throughout its history. Actually, with with chunks of the team being bought and sold, but it would have probably been a little bit more fun. And if you look at a uh, a championship season and you see seven points it doesn't look much good but if there's a higher number it maybe reflects the job they're doing uh, a little bit more
2: I think it's a really good point you make Ed about the reliability side of things because cars now are just bulletproof aren't they and and we often see you know we often only see one or two maybe three dropouts in a Grand Prix whereas in the past you know more than half the field will be out so I think it 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 has made complete sense so the points have evolved to where they are today. it makes a complete mess and mockery of the record books when you know people start wheeling all these stats of Lewis Hamilton breaking all these points records um but the reality is I think it it was absolutely the right thing for f one to do
1: and it means you still haven't got any points, even if we go retrospective so
2: oh shut up
1: Although, of course was well, when's point actually it was points down to tenth when you started, so that's a moot point. you had no points <laughs> then you still got no points no.
0: Moving on. One day they'll do points down to 20th and we can reassess Karun's F1 career. But Karun, let's shut it up for a minute and you can take the next question. This is one of those hypotheticals you mentioned earlier. This one's about 1993 and it's from Stephen Gate who says, Ron Dennis relents and ends McLaren's contract with Shell securing Renault engines for a happy Ayrton Senna. Williams give in to Nigel Mansell's demands, meaning he lines up alongside Alain Prost with the number one on his car, 1993 is set for a classic season. Who wins the title?
2: This would be a cracking season That'd if all of that happened. I think so. Um, I actually would think that McLaren and Senna would win it. I think they the the mp 4 was a good step forward. You know, they they hit the ground running in terms of getting the active car working. The chassis side of it was. I think, very, very good. Um, you know, where they lacked was obviously the engine performance because not only did they not have the top Ford engine that year, but they were, you know, miles behind the Renault in terms of horsepower. Uh, and really, you know, you can go on YouTube and, and watch the um, 93 British Grand Prix with that Senna versus Prost battle, and you get such an illustration of just the power difference between the Renault and the Ford. In the way that Pross is able to out accelerate um, Senna that time, so I do think that a McLaren Renault 93 with that whole active program working and the active car working as well as it was would have made them genuine contenders. You know, Senna still won five races. Um, it's interesting when you talk to Prost; he was never a fan of the active car. He he never um, he said to me he said he never had the the feeling that he needed from it. In the way that he did for the passive car he didn't really like the way that it moved around so i think there was um you know the battle of mansell versus prost in this scenario would have also been really interesting um you know prost obviously had the clear upper hand when they were at ferrari in 1990 um you know winning more races scoring a lot more points than nigel Uh, But I think the active car, Nigel, was a bit of a master. We saw it in 92. He absolutely destroyed Patrese in 92 after they were very close in 91. So I think that that would have been a fascinating battle to watch. Um, And McLaren, you know, certainly Senna's motivation waned. There's that amazing documentary, isn't there, called A Season with McLaren, which I think you can still find online from the 93 season season. And his race engineer, Giorgio Ascanelli uh, is talking about how he could see, you know, Senna's motivation isn't there. He knows coming into races, especially like Monza and, and Silverstone Power Circuits, that he's got no chance against the Williamses. And it's, it's hard to motivate a guy who's a triple world champion, knowing that he's probably going to qualify fourth, fifth, something like that. Um, and so certainly I think if they'd had the Renault engine, and the the Elf fuel because the Elf fuel was also pretty potent at the time. I think that combination would have been right up there against the Williams's.
0: I think people at Williams and probably Karun, you've spoken to more people there than we have, have often felt that Mansell probably would have got the upper hand on Prost in the active cars. But I find it. I think it is interesting that both Prost and Senna, two of the greats of that era, weren't particularly fans of all the driver aids. And the other factor, of course, is that I think once Williams knew they had a big advantage in 93, they perhaps backed off development of the FW15C and certainly the driver aids, which were getting banned for 1994. But I really want to see that season that Stevens laid out there and I'm kind of gutted we can't do it. But let's stick with the hypotheticals then because Chris United 93 on Twitter has asked, if Honda's 1999 program went ahead, and of course, we've done a separate episode on that in the past as well, and BAR was not created, would Jacques Villeneuve have joined their project, or would he have stayed at Williams into the BMW era, or signed for McLaren as rumoured? If he had stayed with Williams, would he have won or challenged for another title? Now, Chris is in my good books, Ed, because he's asked a Villeneuve question. It's not the last one of the show. But what do you reckon to the, all the things that he's laid out there?
1: Yeah, I was going to say he's unlocked the uh, the the key to getting your question actually submitted and uh, into the podcast by mentioning Villeneuve. I think BAR was going to happen independent of Honda because originally it was a longer term plan to use super tech engines, uh, wasn't it? So let's—I guess we've got to say BAR doesn't happen, and if if Honda isn't there as well, it then becomes a question of where does where does he go? It's a good question. If Honda was there, I'm not 100 sure they'd have been keen on him initially but they might have had to go and knock on his door because there weren't that many top drivers around and if they decided that lineup of Verstappen and Sarlo they were originally going to have was a bit tyranny for want of a better word they might have had to go and get him so really it, it comes down to a question of does Villeneuve stick with Williams and head into that BMW era or does he wash up somewhere like McLaren which did have an interest in him whichever way that would have transformed the Villeneuve story and ensured probably that his last F1 win wasn't in 97 I suspect McLaren wouldn't have deemed him so necessary once once Hakkinen really hit his stride. So maybe it would have been a few years down the line before they were interested in him, if they, let's say, when Hakkinen took his initially a eschatical that became retirement, maybe they'd have chosen him rather than Raikkonen, who knows. But by then, Villeneuve could have been fighting for race wins in a BMW-engined car. I think his best bet would have been to hang in with Williams, but I have a sneaking suspicion that given the way things went with drivers with that team and the fact that somebody would have dangled more significantly more money, should we say, in front of him to get him in. Perhaps he'd have ended up who knows where. The fact he went in with BAR, OK, he had the Craig Pollock link, means he wasn't afraid to take a chance with his uh, with his career. So it's one of those hypotheticals that's really, really hard to, to answer. And I think it would have been better for Villeneuve's career if BAR had never been created. That's the one thing we can be absolutely sure about
0: yeah I'd agree with that um I, I can't see that Honda would have would have gone for him, certainly not in the beginning I still I still can't really see that Ron Dennis would have eventually committed to signing a character like Villeneuve so maybe he stays at Williams. I actually think once he got his head around the fact he didn't have a great car in '98, he did quite a good job in the second half of that season. Could he have stomached another year of aging Renault-based engines in '99? maybe and then they've got a lead driver if he's still motivated for the start of the BMW era. And who knows, maybe we would have ended up with fireworks if Juan Pablo Montoya had still come over in 2001. But that's that's a great question. And yeah, I think the summary we take there is that if BAR wasn't created, I don't think Villeneuve's career would have ended up any worse. Next question for Karun from Joshua Fusinato. And this is about 93 and 94 on Prost and Senna again. Uh, He points out that Prost was signed to Williams for 93 and 94, but was then replaced by Senna for the second year of his contract. So why didn't Williams call on Prost for the rest of the 94 season after Senna's death? Which is logical, I think, Karun, because Alain was being paid to sit at home by Williams.
2: Yeah, it's a fair question. Um, But I think, I'm trying to think back, but Prost, I remember Reading in Autosport at the time, actually, uh, saying that he said he could never take Senna's seat, uh, especially in those circumstances. He didn't feel like that was something he wanted to do. I think he didn't feel like he would have the motivation to step into that seat and take over, um, you know, in those tragic circumstances. So, you know, ultimately... If a driver doesn't want to do something, then it doesn't matter what the contract says, you can't force them to do it, um, you know, in the same vein that he didn't want to be alongside Senna 94 in the first place and drive for Williams. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm sure there was a, a bit of thought around that, um, you know, certainly from the public. I remember reading things at the time and the rumors about who might take over Um But actually, I heard some stories the other day saying that um, people like Bernie Eccleston were pushing for Christian Fittipaldi to come in to that seat because Bernie was keen to have another Brazilian up at the sharp end and a big name, obviously, Fittipaldi being a big name. Um, I think he he had also, obviously, Bernie was the one who was really pushing hard for Nigel to come back and do those races. And, um, you know, I think the... By the time they got to these conversations where it was, you know, who's going to fill in, Prost's name was firmly off the radar. So I think uh, there may have been a short conversation, but I think Alan was pretty clear straight away that he he didn't really have the interest in jumping back in a car. Connected to that, I spoke to Ricardo. well, I was going to say a few years ago, I think it was probably about a
1: decade ago now when I uh, had this conversation with Ricardo Petrezzi, but he'd obviously started to be integrated into the Williams test programme because they were struggling all over the place. So he tested the car. And after after Senna's death, Frank Williams had spoken to him and said, look, we might need you here, Ricardo. And of course, he'd only just dropped out of Formula One. He couldn't get a decent drive after being dropped by Benetton. And he said that he was kind of preparing for it and thinking, right, I probably am going to be in. And then he said he was phoned up by, I think it was a journalist from Gazeta who phoned him and then asked him about it, oh, there's this rumour, Ricardo, you're coming back with Williams. And, and Ricardo said that just in that moment, just something sort of switched in his brain. He said, no, no, it's, it's done for me. I'm, I'm not going back. And he said that was like the sudden moment that he decided that he, w- he was going to take himself off the table because he didn't feel it was worth coming back. You know, he'd, he'd had a very long F1 career. He got through it largely unscathed. What had happened at Imola probably made him think, but there's every chance Patrese could have ended up in, in that car. And he'd he'd have been the logical choice because he knew the team inside out, and he'd have been a very positive presence actually for them as well. The the logical choice, really. In in the event they uh, they went for the one sensible option that was left, which was test driver David Coulthard.
0: And I think um, Prost ended up having to explain this again when he almost came back with McLaren. I think there was some testing in 1995, wasn't there? And People were saying, hang on a minute, you said at the time you would never come back to F1 out of respect for Senna. And he did have to clarify, no, what I said was I wouldn't take Senna's seat directly. So that was a good uh, pre-social media example of people misunderstanding what was said and then trying to use it against someone in the future. But let's move on uh, to a question from Nick Petakas. And this is where we go back to the Estreel 93 episode that you were both on. And Nick says, piggybacking on the Estoril 93 chat, do you think that perhaps Michael Schumacher was offended towards the end of the conversation with Ron Dennis that you referred to when Ron told him, look after yourself, etc. Now, we played a clip from that conversation at the time where Ron and Michael were talking about maybe working together in the future. And Ron was telling Michael, one day, come and check us out. Come and have a chat. But we cut it off before the second part of the conversation, which is what Nick's describing, which was actually quite awkward. So let's have a quick listen to that. Look at, look after yourself. Sometimes you're on the limit. Uh, you know, there's a there's one thing that you can't replace. You know, you just look after yourself. You are horrendously impressive. Right. And
2: you think there's yeah. some problem coming up with me?
0: No, I
2: didn't say a problem. It look like? Just look after yourself because when you're in
0: the car, you're controlling your own destiny you know? and it's only you that knows where the limit is. And sometimes from the outside, you know, it just looks right on the limit. You only get one chance sometimes at that. So just look after yourself. That's a much more awkward exchange than the first bit that we've heard before, Ed. What do you make of that? Do you think Schumacher would have taken anything away from that conversation?
1: Yeah, I don't think he'd have been offended, but he'd have certainly been puzzled. And I'm sure he he had that lodged in the back of his mind. It was a really strange comment because the natural conclusion to that conversation was after Schumacher said what he, he has is to say something like, okay, well, door's always open. We'd be interested in this in the future. Keep in touch. Try and keep a good cordial relationship. We've talked before about how the, the Frank williams Ayrton Senna relationship was always good in the background long before he ever signed for the team. But... This doesn't seem to be the, the Ron Dennis Dennis way. I was actually reminded of this uh, the other day. Uh, I messaged you about it, Glenn, when I stumbled upon it, but I was reading uh, from cover to cover the, the excellent John Barnard book, The Perfect Car by Nick Skeens, which I'd recommend. And there's a section about Ron Dennis trying to convince Alan Prost to, to stay at the team rather than leaving for Renault in AC1 in Prost had already no, signed bonkers it's is mad isn't it Prost had already signed the deal so he wasn't having any of it it wasn't even possible and Barnard recounts uh, Dennis's reaction so I'll, I'll quote here this this is Barnard talking with a Ron Dennis quote in it so uh, Barnard says at a loss Ron declared if you don't stay you will regret it you will piss blood." I was taken aback a stunning statement quote ends my impressions aren't good enough to uh not delineate the quote but Ron Dennis was clearly a very effective person he had a particular way of negotiating but I do wonder if that's a bit of evidence of, the, of this pattern of just following up kind of with a bit of a broadside if you if you don't get 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 your way in the negotiation Ron Dennis is Ron Dennis he's achieved great things and people like him are extreme characters the, the very effective and successful often often are. So coming back to Schumacher, maybe that's a small part of why he never ended up at, at McLaren, because uh, it was a possibility. It was on the table when he, he took the Ferrari deal, although obviously things weren't going for McLaren uh, well for McLaren at that time anyway, so it, was, it wasn't necessarily an obvious choice. But I do wonder if if Michael just lodged this in the back of his mind and thought, that's a little bit odd just this little kind of I've not got my way here have a quick have a quick punch just to uh, just to assert myself but that I guess that was the way negotiations and that kind of thing were conducted in that era and there are stories of Ron Dennis in later years struggling a little bit more when it came to this kind of thing because his remarkably successful way of doing things in the past perhaps the world had moved on I I don't know he's uh, he's still active and being very successful so who am I to judge on that but Not an orthodox character, shall we say, for better or worse.
0: No, and this was Ron still at the height of his powers, of course, uh, running McLaren as well. So probably felt quite confident that he could tell a young driver what he really felt. Now, let's move on to a question from Alex. As Ed mentioned earlier, there's one way to guarantee your question gets into the show, and that's to make it about Jacques Villeneuve. Alex asks, what is your favourite Jacques Villeneuve season? And he puts forward 2,000. Ed, you can have this first. Yeah,
1: 2000's a valid suggestion. It was It's a forgotten strong season from Villeneuve. I think there's a tendency to assume that everything happened, uh, everything that happened after Williams was bad, but he, he was strong that year. For me, it has to be 96, because even though I was a 16-year-old Damon Hill fan that year, I was hugely impressed with what Villeneuve did. When you look back, yeah, best car, decent amount of preparation, but to come in from IndyCar and be at that level from the start, really remarkable. Should have won that first race and pole position uh, in Melbourne. Would have won, but for an oil leak that wasn't caused by that off-track moment he had. It's sometimes attributed to that. One in his fourth start at the Nürburgring. Took the title fight down to the wire. Great pass on Michael Schumacher in the fast final corner at uh, Estoril. And put to bed that stupid idea that IndyCar drivers automatically couldn't cut it in in F1. His career's been a curious one, and people do forget how big an impression he made. And certainly in that era, a very, very classy driver.
2: Well, certainly between 94 and 97, his CV was was just unbelievable, wasn't it? If you look across motorsport, you know, Indy car champion, Indy 500 winner, first and second in the Formula One World Championship. I mean, that's an unbelievable run for any driver in history, um, irrespective of whatever car, team, circumstances you're in. Uh, but I would agree, Ed, actually 96, I think, was, was the one that made an impact, wasn't it? You know, he arrived... Um, with a bang as you said pole position in that first race for me the standout moment's got to be Portugal where he pulled off that move on Michael Schumacher uh, around the outside of the final corner just just an incredible incredible move um, and, and you know fair play it took the title battle all the way down to the end so um, I'm sure
0: Glenn you got a very strong opinion on this answer
1: <laughs> you're going to say Renault 2004
0: aren't you? Oh, that was brilliant yeah I remember being delighted about that for about a week so I quite liked Fernando Alonso by the early 2000s as well, but I um, didn't quite work out. Shall I say Sauber 2005? He was uh, he was good at Imola that year. But um, no, I'm going to make the case for 1997, which sounds slightly strange, given that was when he won the World Championship. But it's a year that I think, thanks to Patrick Head, isn't looked back on particularly fondly, because Patrick, of course, made a comment saying something along the lines of Jacques made harder work of that than he should have. To make the defence for 97 though, you've got to think about Australia, where he was on pole by 1.7 seconds. Maybe didn't make a great start, but that didn't necessarily warrant Eddie Irvine wiping him out at the start using a piece of track that I don't think anyone's used at the start of the Australian Grand Prix since. He won the next couple of races. Then we had Imola, where he retired with, I think, a gearbox problem or something like that. So the early momentum of the season could have been with him, and it wasn't through things that were no fault of his own. There was... a uh, I think we can say the Monaco disastrous tyre choice, choosing slicks in the wet, was maybe a joint decision. Uh, clumsy errors certainly in France and Germany, off the top of my head. But you know th- those errors were nowhere near as big as what we saw from Mika Hakkinen in 1999, crashing out of the lead twice, uh, both times in Italy. So Patrick has talked about that comment that he made since, and it's in Morris Hamilton's excellent Williams book that we've referenced on the show before. And Patrick said that 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 comment came amongst a long answer that he gave about Jacques where he said lots of nice things and talked up all of his positive qualities. And then he made that one comment. And that's the thing that everybody, and he said, including Jacques, uh, latched onto forevermore. And also we've got to remember that Adrian Newey left Williams before he would just about finished designing that car. And I think what we saw from Williams in a couple of years that followed suggested that technically they were a bit lost by then already. So the car didn't develop very well, which sometimes is pinned on Villeneuve as well. But certainly the team was heading downwards at the time. So I think I've made my case there. Um, basically, they were all great. All of his seasons were great, and it was everybody else's fault. Uh, Pablo Bueno is a friend of the show, and he's got a Villeneuve question as well. Pabs asks, "What did you make of Jacques Villeneuve being completely?" destroyed by Jensen, but we're not answering that one Uh, Pablo was a friend of the show but I think he knew that one wasn't going to make the cut because he's asked another question which I'll throw to Karun Pablo asks who would be who would you consider the biggest overachiever and underachiever during this era
2: well I think I'm going to split this with Ed you know just so I can spread the love of it so I'll do I'm going to do the underachievers because I've got I've got probably three names that jump at me um I'm going to Go as jean Alesi because he, arri- he arrived in F1 with an absolute bang, didn't he? That French Grand Prix, finished fourth on debut, F3000 champion, was on just on another planet, then had that, um, you know, probably one of the most memorable races of the decade in Phoenix 1990 up against Senna in the turtle, Some giant killing performances in that turtle, you know, Monaco and places like that. So, you know, when you looked at him from, let's say, you know, middle of 89, when he started until the end of 1990, you look at him and go, this is a guy who's going to win multiple world championships. This is a guy who's going to be in the pound seat for a long, long time. And we could be looking at the lazy era of domination. Then you get to the end of his career and he, he won one race. Also, fortuitously, really, because Schumacher's car, you know, had the gearbox issue and he had changed steering wheel in that Canadian Grand Prix. So really, you know, Lazy could have walked away with with no, vict- <laughs> with no race victories at the end of that. So to me, in some ways, it was a question of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, he could have ended up at Williams driving that car that went on to win multiple world championships, ended up at Ferrari at a time where they were in a complete mess. Um... And then it just never really happened for him. You know, he should have won more races, reliability issues, caught him out. And I think, you know, I think of um, Hockenheim, 94, Monza, 94, um, Silverstone, I think, 94 or 95 as well. He had a wheel bearing failure. So, you know, there are races that he could have and should have won. But ultimately, he never had the career that he thought he was going to have for whatever reason. I think Jan Magnussen is another one. You know, I look, his his Formula 3 career, he smashed all the records, uh, was teammates with Dario Franchitti, a very, very good racing driver, as we know, and he completely destroyed him in Formula 3. You know, Jan won 18 races, I think, um, brilliant at Macau, signed for McLaren to be um, a test driver, had a one-off cameo in Aida, but then it just just never happened for him at Stewart or, or in that... McLaren um, deal. So, yeah, I think to me, that was, again, a big disappointment. I was a big um, Formula 3 fan at the time. I remember watching this, uh, you know, this amazing season in 94, thinking, this guy is the next Senna. And that's what he was touted as, as the next Senna to come. Um, But I guess the biggest underachiever has got to be Toyota, hasn't it? You know, with all the resources that they had, you know, good drivers you'd have to say Salo and, and McNish you know okay they never signed your Schumachers and your you know your super duper a-listers but they certainly had drivers who were capable of winning races um but they've got to be formula 1's ultimate underachiever
0: uh, in any era probably let alone the the V10 Ed, do you want to come in there and plug your uh, Toyota YouTube video before we go any further?
1: Yeah, well, I, I like delving into the reasons Toyota fails. So yeah, if you have a look uh, on YouTube on the Racist Channel, there's uh, there's a video about that and the many. Many reasons. It's a fascinating story, actually. That that one, and I think I'm sure we'll revisit it in uh, in Bring Back V10s again in the future. Even though you've already done the uh, the episode about the uh, the development and test year that they did before they they came. And I hadn't actually thought about teams as overachievers. I guess team wise as an overachiever. If I want to pick up the second half of the question, Jordan's probably the one. But I was thinking drivers, and I'm going to go with Damon Hill. Not so much from an ability perspective, because he was a very, very fine driver, but he was a driver who didn't start in cars until, what, 1983, he turned 23 that year, he'd had some success in F3, quick in 3,000, over three full seasons there, but never quite came together, and he seemed destined for a, a tidy enough career, but everything just seemed too late, and he could well have just dabbled in F1 with Brabham in 92, and that was it. You know, you might have picked up the Ligier drive in 93 if Brundle had been signed by by Williams. But it all turned on that one extraordinary opportunity to have the Williams seat in, in 93, which was built on being an excellent test driver and making a, a contribution. You had the fact that Williams was at a loss for drivers. Petraezy had already signed for for Benetton, not thinking that there'd be necessarily a chance to, to stay on. So everything lined up. And because Hill was sort of knocking around the place, doing kind of a quietly, very good, useful job, he became the logical choice over importing an unknown but more ex- more experienced quantity. So there was fortune that the situation arised, but he was the one that was in the right place to capitalise on it because he'd done the job. If you'd said in 1991, oh, you see that guy there who's whatever that year, 30, 31, he's going to win 22 Grand Prix and a World Championship, people have said, what are you talking about? So trajectory-wise, the career made no sense, late starter, but he made that opportunity for himself, he was he was good enough to to capitalise on the opportunity when it came in a way that a lot of drivers haven't. But without that, he might have been a, a footnote in, in F1 history, and, and we'd have never seen that the quality. So I'm not thinking of him as an overachiever in terms of he wasn't a very good driver who did lots, but more just from a career that made no sense, that should not have gone this way, and it did go this way. All credit to him, and, and he became one of the key drivers of, of 1990s Formula One.
0: Yeah, I don't think we'll ever see a career like that again. Someone starting that late and achieving that much. So I quite like that. When that question first came in, I thought this is the sort of thing where I've got to put an answer down now because I'll never come up with one otherwise. And I wrote two names down and only realized uh, this morning that I'd put down two underachievers and not picked an overachiever. I put a Lacey as well. I also put Giancarlo Fisichella, who I thought looked great when he first came into F1. Uh, after a, a little bit of a run with Minardi, he looked great at Jordan in 97, uh, promising at Benetton and then never delivered when he ended up alongside Alonso in the Renault. And Jensen Button always said that Fissi was brilliant in an average car, but maybe couldn't deliver the goods in a good car. I have found it really difficult to think of an overachiever, really. I'd say maybe Ralph Schumacher. Uh, I think he did a really good job for Williams when he had a race winning car at his disposal. But that's not to suggest that he came into F1. As, a, as someone who didn't deserve to be there. So, yeah, very difficult, very difficult to answer that. Let's move on to a question from Mike on Twitter. Uh, and this is a reference to John Barnard again. Uh, who Ed's already plugged that brilliant book. Um, it's, it's quite recent. I know Karoon's read that as well. But Mike says, according to John Barnard, Michael Schumacher said he could have won the title in the 1995 Ferrari if he was driving for them. Ross Braun has said Schumacher could have won the 1996 title in the Benetton if he was driving for them. Do you think either of those claims are true? Let's focus on the Ferrari one first, Ed, because we've got another related Benetton question that I'll throw to Karun afterwards. Was the 95 Ferrari that good that Schumacher could have won the championship in it?
1: Well, you can't say 100% he would have done, but hypothetically, those both of those claims actually hold water. And it helps when looking at them that um, we had and Berger as the counterpoint drivers in, in both cases. So what do we know? Schumacher tested the 95 Ferrari for the first time at Estoril and was apparently a second faster within a few laps than either of the two regular drivers and Berger had been. Barnard said that Schumacher was better able to handle the car characteristics, could work the rear end well to rotate on corner entry. Both Lacy and Berger found that a bit too unstable. So we can say Schumacher would have got more out of the 95 Ferrari, no question. We know it was a quick car. lacy won in Montreal with a bit of luck, but Berger was on pole at Estoril. So Schumacher would have won races and I suspect he'd have probably won the title because he wouldn't have been up against Michael Schumacher in a Benetton which was the main problem but he'd have had to take on Hill and the Williams the Benetton probably was a better car all round but maybe not by as much as it looked so that would have been an interesting uh interesting battle it's it's an interesting one because that whole Schumacher-Barnard alliance obviously it did happen after 95 but I'm not sure it was a match made in heaven great as they both are because Barnard said he wasn't that keen on Schumacher's driving style. And felt he had a bit of a strong opinion on for a driver of that experience of what the car should be doing. And I think you've kind of got two people there with a very, very clear idea of the way things should be done. You know, what Barnard says about Schumacher there, that he, you know, Schumacher had a very clear way and didn't want to do it our way, people would say the same thing about Barnard. So maybe it was irresistible force meets a movable object. But yeah, I think Schumacher would have fought for the championship in that 95 Ferrari. It was a it was a very, very good car. And the 96 car, of course, was a step back. And you can probably say the same thing about Benetton. Uh, I did ask Schumacher about that, and he agreed he'd have had a decent chance at the titles, but didn't feel there was the long-term prospects there, which is probably where where Karun can pick up the second part of the uh, this double question.
2: Yeah, but Schumacher, I think between '94 certainly Paul Stoddart and '96 was you know he was the standout driver. He really was. I mean, some of those. As you mentioned, Ed, the 96 car really wasn't a very good car at Ferrari. If you watch, even now on occasion, you know, you look, you go back online and look at his quality laps around Monaco or Imola. I mean, they were absolutely stunning. You know, that is a driver on the ragged edge, hustling a car around uh, with supreme confidence, which is what he had as a reigning double world champion, of course. There's no question when you talk to people who were at Benetton, through that period, 95 and 96, they believe they would have won the 96 championship hands down with Michael. You know, there's no question about it. I think some of it could be the fact that the car was geared and designed around him. You know, like to have a car on the nose and a a really sharp front end, which none of his teammates could cope with through 94 and 95. And certainly Bergen and Lazy couldn't cope with it. But um, there was a really interesting article... Andrew Benson, um, who's at the BBC now, recycled, uh, I think, during just recently, actually, I right, read in the last few weeks, which was around that first test that Schumacher did at Estoril for Ferrari. And he, he posted it on Twitter. So maybe, you know, people who are interested can scroll through and find it. Uh, but in that, Andrew talks about the first test. And, and also that it was also the first time that Berger and Lazy drove a penitent. And Schumacher was miles quicker and, and completely shocked the entire Ferrari team at just how good and how quick he was straight away. Um, so yeah, I, I think he would have been a, certainly a championship contender in a Ferrari, maybe even in 94, because that was a decent car as well, but certainly
0: 95, um, you know, he, well, he would have done a Ferrari in 96 at Benetton. I actually wonder if the 95 Ferrari was so good that maybe we were talking about a Lacey's stock earlier. I wonder if his reputation was slightly inflated by how good that car as well was as well. But I did say we had a related question to that. And it's from one of our podcast reviews from Nico 2088. Uh, and Nico asks uh, about Benetton's transition from 1996 onwards and what caused their eventual demise. Is it a straightforward caroon Do you think as Just saying, well, they lost Schumacher, they lost Braun, they lost Rory Byrne. The Dream Team was lost and and the Magic was lost at the same time.
2: I think that's certainly a big part of it, for sure. You know, as you mentioned, there's some really key people there who went from Benetton to Ferrari. But also they lost the works Renault deal. You know, the 97 Benetton was decent. Berger won a race at at Hockenheim and they had some some decent results. Podiums for Lazy on, on a few occasions. Even as late as Hereth, I think the final race, Berger, finished fourth. So, you know, they were there or thereabouts. But that was the last race with the works Renault engine. And then, you know, as they went forward with, with the Mechachrome and they just started to spiral downwards, I think they struggled with the aero side of it after they'd lost Rory Byrne. Um, you know, I think Nick Worth stepped in, didn't he, for, for 98, 99. And the car wasn't... Never really that competitive in the pack. You suddenly had McLaren coming forward in in 98. And then once I think David Richards stepped in, they did the Bridgestone deal. So there seemed to be a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel here and there. But it, it became very sporadic. And it really took, I think, until 2003 for them to once again become genuine, consistent podium contenders. You know, they went through a really lean period of reshuffling and change of ownership where they became Renault. I suspect by the end of that process, the Benetton family probably got disillusioned with it, you know. By the end of 2000, they'd gone, what, five years without really being contenders. They'd won one race in that five-year period. So by that stage, they were probably getting a bit disillusioned, which led to their demise as, as team owners.
0: Let's stick on the Michael Schumacher theme for a bit longer. We have a question from James Hayward which came in from Twitter. Ed, James asks, would Schumacher's reign at Ferrari be looked on differently if Eddie Irvine had won the 1999 championship?
1: Well, it means Schumacher wouldn't have been the man that broke the the 20-year driver's championship drought and uh, Irvine would have been the one who did. But at the same time, everyone would have known it was because Schumacher suffered the broken leg. And he'd have gone on to win the title had that not happened. So while I'm sure a few people would have uh, raised questions about if he was worth the money, et cetera, because they were already asking that over those difficult years at Ferrari, I think that'd be quite easy to to bat that away. That 99 season does stand as a, a curious prologue, doesn't it? In that Ferrari won a constructor's title the year before Schumacher won the the driver's title so it's kind of 2000 to 2004 plus a bit of 99 is the way it's seen so it probably would have amplified that that strangeness you know good for Irvin's reputation if he if he'd won it but I don't think it would massively change what happened for Schumacher but it might have got a little bit harder for him before it got better because he would still have gone on to win five world championships and that would have counted for a lot and Irvin would have been back to being the, the clear the clear number two it's it's just a curiosity that it came so close to happening, and I think it probably suited Ferrari that it didn't happen. I'm not suggesting there was anything odd going on, but it was probably useful that that it wasn't Irvin because then some of the sponsors and you know the, the top brass in the team could have said, "Well, hang on a minute, why are we spending all this money on uh, on this driver for uh, for what he offers if uh, if our if our second driver can uh, can win the title?"
2: Well, ultimately, he, Eddie was in the fight that year because. Mika and McLaurin were losing the title as much as Eddie would have won it. You know, you think of the the races that they should have and could have scored serious points and tripped up over each other. Austria comes to mind. Monza comes to mind. You know, there's a lot of races there where they just left points on the table. So, you yeah, know, it was a funny one, wasn't it, 99? Because it was a title that nobody seemed to want to win. A bit like 82. Um, you know, Ferrari and Irvine themselves. Look at Nürburgring. You know, they came in and had a what was it, a 27-second pit stop or something, wasn't it? Were they? Was it... Shambles. Sh- yeah, it was Shambles. I remember Martin Brundle's commentary saying, you know, they're having a committee meeting on the tyres. Just put one, anything on and send it. In. And that's what happened. And um, so, yeah, it did seem a bit, you know, a title that, that nobody seemed to want to win. And, and you know, Jordan threw it away as well with that Nürburgring DNF. You know, they... You know, after that, they just sort of lost lost momentum. Really, they you know, and had a terrible last couple of races. But had they had won that day at the Nurburgring, I wonder if their motivations would have been a bit different.
0: Yeah, and we covered that obviously in a previous episode as well. But Irvine said in several interviews since actually that as soon as Schumacher broke his leg, uh, Ferrari basically turned the development taps off on the 1999 car. And It was only when they got to the end of the year. Realizing that McLaren had still left the door open, that they brought forward some developments from 2000 and the car took a big step forward. And then I think Irvine was obviously a bit underwhelming at that Suzuka decider, wasn't he? And there's there's a little comment. I think it would have been in the Sky Sports interview that Steve Ryder did with him, where uh, he said that uh, prior to that race, he had a very good floor. And then for that weekend, he didn't have the same floor. So read into that. What you would like but let's move on to the final question of the episode and therefore the final question of series two of bring back v10s and it comes from dom de on twitter dom asks had the cart irl split not happened so the indycar split of the 1990s could indycar have become a serious global rival to f1 if so could we have seen more mansell like moves from f1 to america and dom adds Could any other series apart from kart have challenged F1 on a global scale? I'm thinking in particular of both Group C sports cars and especially mid-90s DTM ITC. Perhaps tellingly, Bernie Eccleston had to meddle with both of those championships. Where do you want to go with that, Ed? Well, I'm always happy to talk about kart
1: in this era, and so I might bang on for for hours. And it, It was incredible in the 1990s, and after the split, while it did retain structural integrity for a bit eventually that that split did dilute everything and it's difficult to say with IndyCar because it was always an American championship yeah it raced in Australia and there are occasional races elsewhere but USA was its core and it was it was always I think going to remain a North American championship I don't think you could fully internationalize it and as soon as you're based in the US in terms of being a rival to F1 you're not in a great time zone it's not a European championship, if you see what I mean. So never got got that foothold because it's never as simple as what's the best racing product. You need that continuity, history, relevance to a region. F1 works for myriad reasons. And actually producing consistently brilliant racing isn't the be-all and end-all. It just isn't because we've seen that through, through time. So I think karts didn't need to displace F1 Anyway, it was a brilliant championship in that era, spectacular cars, wonderful, cracking drivers, unpredictable, crying shame the split did the damage. Had that split not happened, CART would have been stronger certainly and would have been a viable alternative for drivers. I'm I'm not sure there'd have been that many mansell esque moves in terms of a world champion driver deciding to go over there, but it would have continued to be a very, very good alternative for drivers and maybe... You might have seen people doing Fittipaldi-esque moves there, shall we say, later in their career. Maybe they have a brief retirement it's he and come back or they think, oh, I've had enough of F1, I, I will do this. I think when it comes to that whole idea of displacing F1, you know, DTM, ITC and Group C's mentioned, DTM, ITC didn't need any intervention to fall over because it, it was a domestic championship, a German championship that got too big for its boots. It was spectacular. I love the Class 1 touring cars, but it was never going to be sustainable and group c sports cars fine era but endurance sports car racing isn't going to be the mass consumption product that f1 is it just cannot be but i do think i'd like to have seen car as a as remaining a viable option as in somewhere where a driver could go and earn a professional living not have to necessarily bring money to come in and we saw a lot of drivers do that after falling out of f1 uh, mark blundell took an IndyCar option when there were still possible F1 chances on the table it was viable for a driver like that a good driver who didn't get a great uh, front running F1 opportunity I'm interested to see what you think Corrine if if Carpe was still what it was in let's say 2012 or something when you'd fallen out of Formula One a place that offered you know pay for drivers to go that that would be a logical place for a driver like you to have, have ended up if it was still what it was and I imagine you you probably looked at IndyCar in that era, but it was just a totally different proposition than it would have been in car's era.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I remember I spoke to two or three, three teams, in fact, um, you know, through 2011, um, about the 2012 season and beyond. But, you know, they all needed a budget. And, uh, you know, even people like Barrichello ended up taking a budget to race there. And he obviously, you know, arrived with much more experience and a much better CV than I did. So, I, you know, they, they needed three, four, five million dollars which is why I ended up going to sports cars because that was a place where I could get paid a living to drive and and go to Le Mans and stuff as a, as a professional driver. And there, there weren't many opportunities in America. I think, you know, you had Penske, Ganassi, but even, even those, you know, they're, they're sort of linked. they you know, you look at a driver like Marcus Ericsson who's gone to Ganassi, he's had to take a budget to go there. So yeah, unfortunately it's not, it's not like it was in the heyday, as you mentioned, you know, that, pre the split um, when you had the likes of Newman Haas and and Penske taking on the world and, uh, you know, even the, the, the team green cars and, you know, all of those drivers, you had lots of, you probably had 10, 12 drivers on the grid all earning very decent money out of it. The prize money was very good, um, you know, for the drivers there, but that's gone now. If you look at the current IndyCar grid, there's, it's probably an argument, isn't it? Is to say, you know, who's who are whose championship has more professional paid drivers, IndyCar or the BTCC? And they're both four or five now, not more than that. Yeah, it's, it's
1: a great shame. It's, it's interesting to imagine what would have happened with CART because I think the key was that, let's say the split never happened. I think the key would have been that CART needed to understand what it was and what its strength was. And yeah, a little bit of internationalisation worth doing. Events like Surfers Paradise did add to it. But if it tried to take on F1 it would have been a mistake because it just doesn't need to be that and this is a this is a problem so many championships have they th- there's this desire for growth obviously that you know everything needs to needs to grow but sometimes you you end up growing into places you shouldn't which is what ITC uh DCM ultimately ultimately did and just just went too far so maybe that cart period was just a magic moment in time where for an era and Mansa was a key part of that it it just was right in the sweet spot and i'd love to know how to recreate a championship like that again but it's really really hard to imagine how to how to achieve that but maybe in a some parallel universe during you're, uh, you're a three-time kart champion you're recording a podcast episode now for bring back roadsters or some such uh, some such thing and uh, it's a very very different world
2: I mean, when you look at the cars in that early 90s, mid-90s era, they're amazing, aren't they? The Indy cars, you know, they really look they looked the part, they were quick, they were clearly difficult to drive, um, you know, physical to drive, still the manual gearboxes you you see. You know, Nigel, when he went over in 93, all of a sudden had these hand blisters because he'd done the last four seasons with a nice paddle shift car at Ferrari and Williams. And um Great racing as well. Really good racing. There's a there's a fantastic battle. I'm trying to think, Ed. What what's the the airport? Is it Portland? Cleveland. Uh, Cleveland. Cleveland, isn't it? The Embassy for Dipaldi versus Mansell. They do a fantastic battle, which goes on for the entire race, pretty much. Um, yeah, some. It was a great era for for IndyCar and Kart, as they were called. But yeah, yeah, something we you know another one of those big what ifs, I guess.
1: If anyone wants to see the, uh, the the key peak of that, just have a look at Portland, 97. Mark Blundell winning by, I think it was 27,000th of a second from Gilles de who celebrates going over the line. You got that wrong. And Ralph Bazell's there, something like thousandths from memory behind Blundell. Just an amazing finish. And there were just so many outstanding races. I think, maybe I mentioned that sweet spot. Perhaps it's just the point where you had, there were good budgets, but it wasn't too expensive. The cars were good, but not, but technology hadn't advanced to a point where you really had to heavily restrict it in the same way. And then we've kind of fallen off the other side when we're more trying to create a set of rules to work within the the existing technology. It's uh, Perhaps it's not possible to to recreate that, but what an amazing era. If if anyone wasn't able to watch it at the time, there's all sorts of videos you can find on YouTube. Just spectacular to watch. If anyone could recreate that formula, they're going to be onto a winner.
0: Yeah, it was absolutely brilliant. And I think the the key there is that those races do stand the test of time. It's very easy, even for us here at Bring Back v 10s to talk about how wonderful everything was in the past. But you can go back and watch a lot of old F1 races and and realise that not a lot happened. And as Karun mentioned last time he was on with us, he watched an old Grand Prix from 93 uh, and the top six were covered by a couple of laps. So it wasn't always better in the past, but that type of racing from America in the mid-90s really was that close and exciting. And I think it was a mix of Good sponsorship money, good manufacturer involvement, a tyre war, just just everything came right at the right time. But that's it for the end of Bring Back V10s. If we carry on for any longer, we'll become Bring Back Carts, which I wouldn't really have a problem with, but that's a whole other load of uh, research for me. That's another series then in the books. Thank you so much to everyone who has listened to the show, who has interacted with us on Twitter. And of course, a special thank you to everyone who has been leaving us a five-star podcast review. Sorry to anyone whose question didn't make the cut this time. We are we are so, so grateful to be inundated with too many questions for the second series running. And we've done our best to get through as many as possible once again by splitting our series finale into two parts. Who knows, maybe in the future it will have to be a, a three-part finale. But I said a few times that you wouldn't have to wait too long to find out when series three was going to be. And if you've stuck with us all the way to the end of this episode your reward is being the first to know that Bring Back V10s will return in January 2021. Until then, I've got lots of work to do researching 10 more episodes, and we'll, of course, finish off another series by taking your questions. Until then, keep up with everything going on in current motorsport at therace.com, and as Ed always says, don't forget the hyphen. Check out our other podcasts, including our regular shows on F1 and MotoGP, plus Gary Anderson's podcast where you can regularly put your own questions to Gary as well. Check out The Race on YouTube where we have multiple new videos per week covering F1 topics new and old, so if you're looking for your F1 history fix in the coming weeks, there's lots for you over there. That's it for Series 2 of Bring Back V10s, and we'll see you again in January.